0: Welcome to the Francisca Show podcast on JewishCoffeeHouse.com, the show where I give a voice to Jewish issues, topics, and people. I'm Francisca Frady, your host. Welcome back to the show. Today, our episode is unrelated to the war. And it's always, you know, I listen to podcasts and I always go back and forth between listening to podcasts about the war and then being annoyed that everything's about the war needing a distraction from the war and then being annoyed by podcasts that are not covering the war. So today's an episode, if you'd like a distraction from the war, a heartfelt episode, very much what we've been doing before the war broke out. Today's episode is about adoption. I'd like to encourage you to check out our throwback episodes. I linked them in the show notes for you. One is titled, there's always loss in the adoption triangle, and I always knew I was adopted. So check those out. And thank you so much for the messages that have been coming in. I really enjoyed them, and I'm happy to pass them along to the relevant parties. So keep sending them. If you enjoy this podcast, tell me, tell your friends, tell your family. This is how we grow the show. This is a Jewish Coffeehouse podcast, so check out the other shows on the Jewish Coffeehouse Network. Here we go. Welcome to the show, Dr. Sherry Wise from Toronto. Thank you.
1: It's lovely to be here.
0: So tell us a little bit about yourself religiously and professionally, and then we'll get into your story.
1: I have been a teacher in Basiakwa High Schools since 1989. I have taught English for the most part, and I am currently teaching at a school called Tiferis Basiakwa's. I finished my doctorate in English, I went back to school, I defended in 2017, and then I returned to Tiferis, I've been very happy there. I'm the mother of seven, I'm also a Balas Tshuva. My husband and I became from when we were in our early 20s. How were you raised? My parents were very proud Jews, but they were not observant Jews. They sent me to Sunday school. I grew up in in the reform tradition, if you can call it that. And I still had, despite that, a very, very strong sense of my own identity as a Jew. When I went to high school, I went to a French Canadian high school. I was educated in French and I was actually the only Jew in that high school. And maybe in some ways, this even strengthened my sense of my myself as a Jew. I got involved in the labor Zionist movement as a teenager. And this was one of the steps actually towards becoming from. I I learned uh, to love Eretz Israel. And then I met my in-laws, my future in-laws, who were survivors of the Holocaust. And meeting them had a huge impact on me. My parents had been born in Canada. I had never met survivors. And meeting them and hearing their stories really cemented my decision in my late teens to lead an observant life. So I, I was very influenced by M. L. Fackenheim. Uh, he wrote a book, God's Presence in History, in which he talks about the 614th commandment, which is not to allow uh, Hitler, your a posthumous victory. And I, I took that very much to heart. And uh, so it was a gradual process. We have made the decision intellectually to become from. And then it took a few years to fit everything into place. And uh, yeah, so we we raised from kids and uh, it's been an amazing journey. Thank you for taking us through that.
0: You have reached out to me because you have a super fascinating story, a very unique one, and you are writing a series in a very well-known magazine. So we wanted to get The audio form.
1: Yes. Okay. Um, So, yeah, the series started appearing in Ami magazine. It was last Pesach. And there were several groups of installments that I submitted. And there was really a very, very strong response to it. People were very excited. The editor, Rechi Frankfurter, is always after me. She wants to know updates. People stop me in the street. Literally, they want to know updates about the story. So, what happened was... I was adopted as a newborn and raised, as I said, by my wonderful parents. And I was never into finding out about my birth mother, which was just not something that interested me. I had a wonderful relationship with my mother. And then when I married my husband, I adored my mother-in-law. So I was very, very blessed. I had two mothers. So I wasn't one of these people where I felt like there was some sort of a void in my life because I didn't have this biological connection. I really was not very interested. So what happened was it was just a very, very strange story in terms of hashgaha pratis. After I finished my doctorate, I did not want to stay within the university. I wanted to do something else. I felt like I just had enough. I started doing a different kind of writing instead of academic writing. I started doing memoir writing, creative writing. And I took some courses through the university. And one of the courses was a memoir course. And every week I had to come up with a thousand words. I would write about being bullied as a child. I told a story about that. I told a story about finding out that I was adopted when I was a little girl. So I just, I came up with different stories, but it was a pressure. Every week I needed a new story. One of the weeks I had written like this first part of an adoption story. And then what I did is I created like a cliffhanger. Like I made it seem that there was new information and there really wasn't, but it was just fun to do this cliffhanger. It ended in a way like this was all I knew until kind of dot, dot, dot. Not as cheesy as that, but you get the point. Anyways, I needed to come up with the second story and I had no story. So I did what I do when things are not going well and I started whining about it to my family and my son, um, he heard me fetching and I had read him the first piece, which was basically a piece where I reflected on being adopted and how I processed that information differently as a child and then as a teenager and then as a firm woman. And so he said, you know, mom, if you're, if you're really stuck with this story, three years ago, I did do that ancestry DNA thing. And I connected with this really very lovely woman. She's very refined and maybe she can help you with the story. I think, I think she's maybe a cousin. We share 14% DNA. Hold on. You did the, the 23 and me or your Absolutely son? Absolutely not. My son did, but he didn't tell okay. me. He had done it three years before. So first I was thinking, like, you did this and you didn't tell me and you're talking to someone and you're not telling me, but whatever. We'll put a pin in that. And then he said, look, I'll just, I'll give you, I'll give you with the, I'll send the email correspondence. I corresponded with her. She's very lovely. So he forwarded the correspondence. Now, the one thing that I had found out is after my mother had been gone for 10 years, I wrote away for my my, my records the adoption records and I had one idea in mind I wanted to just say thank you to my birth mother that's all I wanted I didn't want a relationship but I figured she's probably near the end of her life at this point at given my age and I thought if she's still alive I would just like her to know that I make good use of the gift of my life because I always had this sense every year on my birthday the first thing I would do I'd wake up say mo to Ani And I would always think about my birth mother and I would wonder, does she remember, does she know that today is like the day that she gave birth to a little girl and that's it. And then I wouldn't think about her the whole year. But I thought, you know, before she dies, maybe I should say thank you because I do have tremendous accords that I'm alive. I had written away and the one thing and I showed that I was willing to be contacted by her if she was alive and then I heard nothing. So I just forgot about it. But the one thing I did learn was that her name was Laura Lynn. That's what I knew. Her name was Laura Lynn. So when my son forwarded the correspondence to me, on one of the emails, there was a subject line that said Laura Lynn. And I thought, oh my gosh, it's not such a familiar name. So I said to my son, sweetie, like, who is this Laura Lynn? And he said, oh yeah, that's this lady's mom. So I opened up the picture and the... The woman, I have the picture here, (laughs) but the woman in the picture looked exactly like me when I was 20, except she had red hair. And the one detail I knew about my birth mother was that she had red hair. And the little baby that she was holding was my sister, Tracy. So uh, in that moment, it was really, it was a huge, it shook me up because I think I had persuaded myself that biology doesn't count for anything. I felt very conscious, especially as a balas chuva. I felt very conscious that I was always choosing. Like I chose to be from, I chose this life, right? I felt very empowered by all the choices that I had made. So I thought I am who I am based on all my choices. I didn't think that I was who I was at all just because of DNA. I didn't think DNA was that important. But when I saw the picture, it was shocking because I looked so much like her. Anyways, I had a very big decision to make, which was whether to get in touch with this woman, Tracy, or not. My son had told her that I was not interested in a relationship. That's what he had understood. So she had been like very private. She did not try to reach out to me. So I felt like in that moment, it was really a super basher moment. Like I could go this way or I could go this way. I could shut the laptop and just pretend this never happened. Or I could like trust Hashem that that I was meant to be shown this for a reason and go forward. So I chose to go forward, and that's how I found my sister Tracy. And you needed a story for your class. I needed a story, and boy, did I get a story! That was oh, that was amazing. I had to write it very quickly, but yeah, that was definitely a worthy sequel. But who knew? Who knew? Like it was just the the craziness of the way that it happened. I always feel like the Aberstra has a sense of humor and just the timing of it was so funny. But I did reach out to my sister and it, I mean, it's not like we had an immediate connection because we were just doing things over Zoom. But when we met in person, we knew that it was love. Like we felt very, very, very connected to one another. And she's my sister and I speak to her every day and I love her. And I, it's, it's just such a huge bracha, such an incredible bracha at this stage in life to be able to have this new person in my life who I trust. I feel like I can tell her everything and she'll, she'll always understand and she'll never misconstrue anything. And I never had a sister. I've had some, I've been blessed with some wonderful friends, but I've never had a sister and it's different. A sister is different. And I just feel. I feel so blessed that Hashem gave me this gift at this stage in my life. So when did this happen? When did you come across your sister? So we met for the first time. We met. So I met her. It was Adar two years ago in Adar that we first met, that we spoke. And then we met in person the June after. I flew out to Vancouver. She lives in Vancouver. So I flew out there. And it, it was interesting because even though between Adar and then June, when I flew out, we had had many conversations on the phone and we were Zooming and emailing. There was a lot of communication, but I still didn't know if she was going to be just a girlfriend or if she'd be my sister. And it made me really think about, well, what is, it a, sis- what is a sister? It, it, it's really, it's someone you grow up with, like you share parents and you and you fight and you share clothes and secrets and all those things. And we had none of that. We had no common experience. And she had been obviously not raised Jewish. She wasn't raised with very much. Her mother was very spiritual, but there wasn't like any kind of institutional religion. And I was a from Jews and she never had children. And I had seven children. So our lives were very, very different. And even on the plane, on the way to Vancouver, I really did not know how I would react to her. I, I, I It was like really rehearsing. Okay, what do I do? I'm going to get off the plane. I'm going to see her. Are we going to shake hands? Like, are we going to say, how do you do? You know, and it was still COVID. So you had to wear a mask on the airplane. I had no idea. Like, I thought, do we hug each other? Is that inappropriate? Because we don't, we're still strangers. I was really reasoning it out. The whole time on the plane and I was really nervous about it. Very, very nervous to meet her. But the moment I saw her, it changed everything. She was behind the barrier. She's, she's tall. She's taller than I am. She's five, eight. She's very slender. We were both models as teens, but she was a very successful model. She was an international model and she's still like, she's beautiful. She's willowy and tall and she was standing behind they had like a little a little fence separating the passengers from the people waiting and she was just like jumping up and down and like flagging me and very dramatic and and we just i ran we we tore off our masks and we hugged and we started crying and we were crying uncontrollably and i never saw that coming and it, and i remember hugging her so hard i could just feel her heartbeat and it was, it was, it was one of the most intense moments of my life. That moment, it was, it was beautiful. And it, and it was funny because I had never felt that I was missing something. But in the moment that we were brought together, I really felt she was my missing piece, but I wasn't aware mm-hmm. that she was missing in my life. And now I can't imagine my life without her. I have a bunch of
0: logistical or <laughs> detailed questions for you. Yeah, sure. So who's older?
1: I'm older. Two years. You're so older, I am the big bossy years. sister. Yeah. And she's the little sister and she has to listen.
0: And you don't have any other siblings that you know of.
1: So I had, oh, like biological. I had a, I had a brother who passed away uh, quite a few years ago. But no, no, because um, my birth mother who raised Tracy after I was born, she had Tracy and raised her she was never able to have more children. She wanted more children because then she'd married and she wanted a larger family and she couldn't have. So I was born when my birth mother was 17 and then Tracy was born two and a half years oh, so later. So she
0: wasn't given up for adoption. She no, she grew she up with your biological She mother. grew up,
1: yes, with my birth mother, yes. And my birth mother is still alive. Uh, she has Alzheimer's and it's been pretty bad. She doesn't even know who Tracy is. But within a month of me finding Tracy, I told Tracy that I wanted to say thank you to my birth mother. So we did have a Zoom. We had a Zoom. She lives in the interior of British Columbia. That's far away uh, from me. And so we did a Zoom, but you could see she was a little out of it. She was still speaking then, but she was there with her husband and with her younger sister, who I have a relationship with. Her name is Aunt Jill. So they were there. And basically, I just I told them a little bit about my life and the things that I have been privileged to accomplish in my life. And that how happy I was that I had a relationship with Tracy that I said, you must be happy that your your two girls are together now. And and I thanked her. And I said, I, I couldn't have done any of this if you had not given me the gift of my life. So I thanked her. So I did what I needed to do. I don't feel like her response was not exactly satisfying, but I think that was just the illness. That was the illness. But I did what I wanted to do and, and that was fine. I, I wasn't disappointed because I really had not, I had not desired to have a relationship with her. I would have felt on some level that it, no expectations. I had no expectations, but also I felt very strongly protective about my own mother, even though my own, my mother has been gone for 13 years now. I, my mother who raised me is my mother. And I would never even call my birth mother, my mother. My mother is the woman who raised me and loved me. And had she given birth to me, she, she could not have loved me more than she did. So I, I felt very protective of that, even, even after she passed away. Your biological mother, is she Jewish? Talk to me about that whole saga. Okay, so I had to go to mikvah as a child, right? So, because I was adopted. So, she's not Jewish. What's interesting about her is that she grew up in Calgary. Now, that's not a place that had a lot of Jews in it, at least when in the, let's say, the 1940s and 50s. She was a Judeophile, you know, someone who loved Jews, which is very interesting. One of the things that really shocked me to learn was that my birth mother, who was all of 17 when she gave birth to me, she chose for me to go to a Jewish family. That's why I came to my parents. She wanted me to be Jewish. So it was an amazing thing. Like, why? What would be her connection to Judaism? And she's a non-Jewish girl growing up in Calgary. You know, no Jewish family. So apparently when she was pregnant with me, she left home. And she came to Ontario and she was working to support herself as like a cleaning lady. And one of the places she worked was a Jewish family. And the Jewish family was very kind to her. And this is what, this is the theory that her sister has that she chose for me to be Jewish because she experienced chesed with a Jewish family. But obviously, it was a hugely consequential decision, you know, because I feel it, it would have been much harder for me to become a from Jew had I not been raised as a Jew. You had the identity piece. Oh, my goodness. Very strongly. Very, very strongly. I was going to ask, why were you
0: adopted? And it sounds like because she was 17.
1: Yeah, she gave me away because she was too young. My mother was not able to have children. She had had some sort of a, a surgery, I think, before... She and my father were married and she knew she couldn't have children. So in those days, you know, the adoptions were very, very, very private. And my parents told me exactly the way you're supposed to. I remember I was four years old and I was outside playing on my bike and they called me in and they gave me this very nice explanation. You you didn't start out in mommy's tummy. You were adopted. We chose you. We love you you're our daughter, we're, we're we're your parents, and that's it. And I remember my reaction was, okay, you finished? Can I go out and play? Like, it was just, it was so uninteresting to me. <laughs> it was so not a big deal. I know that that's often not the case. And I'm actually part of a WhatsApp group of from adoptees. And I was doing like a survey just to sort of get a sense of attitudes within this group for the book that I'm writing. And it, it was interesting that even, even people who are very well adjusted and have a wonderful relationship with the adoptive parents, they all said that they view adoption as a traumatic event. Everybody I surveyed felt that way. Now, I never did, but it seems to be, it's quite a conventional way to respond to it. Do you know why
0: you experience it dramatically differently from the firma adoptees you've spoken to? Yeah.
1: I mean, my, the survey group that I have is, is small, so I don't know how valid those findings are, but uh, you know, this is the sort of thing I'm starting to research a little bit, the trauma of adoption. I don't know. I think some of it is just, is just within our own DNA. Some of us are born a little bit more resilient and I've, I have always been a a very resilient person, and I think becoming from was also part of it in that we really internalized this idea that Hashem is taking care of us and Hashem is putting us in the situation that has the greatest potential for our own growth and development, and I guess I had really internalized that as I was processing, again, the idea of being adopted, like when I encountered... Um, this whole birth family situation. But also I always felt, I felt blessed. I felt like my parents loved me a lot and they did their best for me. And I, you know, I had a pretty happy life.
0: How did you be coming from affect your relationship with your parents?
1: My husband and I were careful in that we we were doing this gradually. I think that the big challenge for most ballet chuva is when you stop eating there, right? Like you can do, you do you, but you have to eat in my house. So at a certain point, we stopped eating both at my parents' home and, and at my in-laws. And yeah, they weren't happy about that. I invited them to me. So er- everything was at my house and I was I was prepared to do that. And then they were fine with that. Or I remember my mother used to have like a few little dishes she set aside so I could bring kosher bagels and we would eat them symbolically in her house. And that also mattered. But I think if you continue to be respectful, To your parents and to honor them and to love them then they can get over that but we were nervous we were nervous we really we were kids who wanted to please our parents we were of that generation it mattered to us we wanted to give our parents nachas so my parents had a different vision of what my life was going to look like and i don't think they ever imagined that i would be you know from wearing a shaital and having all these kids my father's ambition for me was always that i would become an academic so I did. He just didn't live to see it. <laughs> I remember when I was starting, one of the times I was going to graduate school, uh, I remember going in and it was at University of Toronto and that was the university he really wanted me to go to. I went to a different university for undergrad, but then I went there for graduate school and I remember going into a class and my father had been long gone, but I said, Daddy, this one's for you. So I hope that you're, you're finally having novice. <laughs> Yeah, no. So they were wonderful, and we had a good relationship. And listen, you know, you can read books about balechuvah and the, and the struggles. And and my husband and I didn't go at the same pace. Like most most Balichuva. you're not going to be in lockstep with your partner necessarily. So that had its own challenges. That's one of the things I've been writing about in in the memoir. You just you have to be smart. You have to be smart. It's a it's a balance, right? You want to maintain shalom bias and you want to move forward, right? With Yiddishkeit. Yeah. And the
0: commandments, the mitzvahs, are different for men and women. So, of course, you're going at different paces because it's complete lifestyle change. And you're not doing the same lifestyle changes. You're doing different
1: Well, except things. like with things like Shabbos, like right? Like you're not
0: going to Minyan three times a day. And he doesn't need to put on a sheitel.
1: Right, right. But he needed to put on Shetel, right? <laughs> yeah. So I think that why why it worked for us is that we didn't have a conventional courtship. We met when we weren't from. So we met at camp and we were actually friends. In my world, in my old world, it was possible for, for girls and boys just to be friends. So he was just one of my guy friends. And then, so we had that foundation. I, obviously, that doesn't work for foreign couples, but for us, it worked very well because we had a very, very solid friendship before there was any kind of like romantic interest. And I think that served us well over the years. Because he was always, he was like a best friend. He was the person that I always wanted to talk to who understood me the most. And we just, we always found one another fascinating just to talk to. So we were able to, to take that and, and segue into, <laughs> into an actual marriage. So we had a, we had a stronger foundation, I think, than some couples. My husband is quite a bit shorter than I am. And I always joke that the reason our Shadchan was Hashem, Is that no one would have set us up because of the height difference?
0: You mentioned you were a model. Was that before you were from? Oh yeah, hello. Yeah, just
1: share a little bit about that and what it was like giving that up. Oh, not a big deal at all. I gave it up way before I was from. I modeled in my early teens, and then I got busy with school, and school was more important to me, and I didn't want to ditch school to go on. You know, they're called they were called gosies in those days. So not a big deal. I mean, it it was. I guess it was fun for a while, but I wasn't serious about it. I absolutely wasn't mm-hmm. serious. I had, I had a lot of other interests, and I was very, very focused on getting into university. I felt like my life would start when I, when I went to university. That was way more important to me. So I did it for a while, and then I lost interest. Yeah.
0: What about your sister, your biological sister, and the dynamic, her not being Jewish and you being from, what's that like?
1: When we first started, oh, she was so cute. When I went to Vancouver for the first time, she bought all new dishes and she had this whole cupboard with all of my kalim and like a frying pan and and she did everything like red and blue and it was all color coded. It was so cute. She went crazy. She just went crazy preparing for me. So, and I told her and that she wanted, she wanted to make sure that she had, There's a there's a place you can get kosher food. She wanted to order everything. And I said, honestly, like, I can have some tuna on a paper plate. Like you don't need to worry about the food in such a big way, but she went nuts. I never spoke to Tracy about conversion, but after she came to visit us in Toronto, she had her first shot with us and she loved it. And I took her to shul. I took her, to, I, I go to two different shuls. There's a more modern one. And then there's a, a more, like a frommer one, like a Stiebel. So I like to toggle between them. In both places, she was greeted so warmly. I was so proud of my community. So proud because people in my neighborhood had had read the stories and they knew, and they she calls herself Schwester. So they knew that Schwester wasn't Jewish. And (laughs) when Schwester came the first time, I'm telling you, people would like stop their cars and like, Schwester, that's Schwester. Like, she was a celebrity here. It was, at, I live in a very from neighborhood in Toronto. Everybody was so lovely and welcoming. It was incredible. So she had, we had a Shabbos together and it blew her mind. She just, she fell in love with Shabbos. And she met my kids, can I know her a lot of grandchildren. Everybody called her Auntie Tracy. From the, I didn't tell them to do it. They did it because they're nice. I've got nice kids. And the first time my youngest son, Bara, called her Auntie Tracy, and he just did it because he's a very loving person, she started to cry. Because she doesn't have siblings until she knew she had me. She's never. No one has ever called her Auntie. So, of course, no one's called her Mommy. But no one had called her Auntie until my son called her Auntie. And she cried because now she was an aunt. So now she's an aunt, she's a great aunt. So after that first trip, which was amazing, she goes home and she, of course she experienced Shabbos. And what was funny is my, my husband was walking down our street and it's very friendly, people sit out. I guess it was summertime. And one of my neighbors said she had read the series and she had met Schwester and she said, no. So when is uh, Schwester converting? So my husband started laughing. He says, what do you think this is? An arts girl story? You think it's going to be this perfect ending? Come on. Like she's not converting. She's just not Jewish, right? So he comes home. Again, the timing. I had just gotten off the phone and he tells me the story. He says, you'll never guess. One of the neighbors said, new, when is she converting? And I just gotten off the phone. I said, Kenny, you won't believe this. Tracy's just told me she's converting. So she is in the process now. And obviously this is yet another thing that we share now. And it's good it's it's gonna take a while. It's not happening right away as, as you probably know, it's a long process. But she keeps she keeps kosher, she dresses me ninety percent she keeps Shabbos. She's really coming a long way. She does like two Shiarim a week and you know, Mirza Shem, we're really hoping that she'll move to Toronto. And I know that once she comes to Toronto, the, the Rebeim want to see her living in a from neighborhood before they can really proceed for her to meet with the base dean. So that's the piece we're waiting to fall into place. So God willing. But yeah, it's amazing. She's a very proud Jew. You know, when, when the terrible thing happened, the massacre, she was so upset and she went, she was with me. She was with us for Yontip the last days. And then she went back to Vancouver. It's so interesting to watch her because she's feeling like persecuted as a Jew, like when she's reading like not nice things about Israel or at her workplace when they're saying like pro-Palestinian things. And she's so aggravated and she's so upset all the time. It's it's amazing to me. So Baruch Hashem. So that'll be God willing. That'll be yet another thing that, that we will share. But that was it was very much her decision. Obviously, I wasn't going to raise it. You know, we're not a proselytizing religion. And I would never ask her to do that, but she came to it. And I I really think a lot of it, it was Shabbos. It was the community. She was just blown away. She had never seen anything like it.
0: Well, there is nothing like it when you have a loving family and community and everything goes well. (laughs) So when the abuse of power or trauma kicks in, that's when there's less space sometimes in the communities. And that causes for people to look elsewhere. But that's not our topic for today. Your children, any final remarks you'd like to bring your kids into the story? I know you mentioned your son was the leading factor to you finding your sister. Uh, it's
1: true, it's true. So yeah, they, I've just been very proud of the way they have welcomed her because it was a little weird. And I have to tell you, when I sent in that first story to Ami, where I was just being so honest about, you know, having been adopted, not everybody knew that, and it's not something I talked about. Certainly, when my mother was alive, I was very secretive about it because I felt that I felt it was a slight to my mother's covenant. I never wanted to and because my mother was very private about it. So it took me until ten years after she had died before I felt like I could talk about it. So they've been absolutely wonderful about it, and and when I sent in that first story, I remember like pushing sand, and then I called my sister, and I said, "Maybe I've made a terrible mistake. Like I don't even know how my community is going to react to this story, this crazy story about me and this non-Jewish, you know, birth mother. The whole thing is just so weird." And I said, "What if everyone hates me and is mean to me now?" And she was so cute. She said, "I'm not going to let anyone be mean to my shvester." She said, you're going to come and you're going to move in with me and you're going to bring all of your kids and you can even bring your dog. The <laughs> <A> dog. <laughs> and then she threatened to come to Toronto and beat up anyone who was mean to me. So then there re- it was just amazing that the reaction was so different because I was a little afraid to tell my kids. I have to say, like the whole thing is weird. But they just, I think they came away just with the right attitude. And I remember speaking to one of my sons and, and what I was puzzling over, okay, this is from Hashem, yes. Why would <laughs> Hashem choose to show this to me now at this age like why now it's just I kept like wondering like not that I'll 100% know and my son my son said you know what it's just a huge bracha it's just Hashem giving you a hug and I think the other piece that we haven't talked about I feel we were we were perilously close when you mentioned trauma is that 10 years before I found my sister my oldest son died. So we had, we had a terrible trauma in our family. And, uh, it was an accidental, very strange, sudden death. We weren't prepared for it at all.
0: Can you tell us what happened?
1: It was, it was a freak drowning. It, it, it made no sense. He drowned in shallow water and there was no water in his lungs when they yeah, he, he drowned. Oh.
0: And how old was he?
1: He was 33 and he left three little kids. So that was such a shock that at the time, probably for the first year, I honestly felt that I would never be happy again. I really believed that. I knew that I had a duty to live and to help support my daughter-in-law who was widowed and her children and that my other children still needed me. And I felt like I'm only alive because I have to do these things, but there'll be no joy. And then I worked through it and I had arrived at a point where I could be besimcha again. I mean, obviously for any bereaved parent, it's not, it, it's not like the mourning that you do for your own parents. When you lose a child, it's something that is with you every day. It's with you every day until you breathe your last.
0: It's unnatural.
1: Yeah, because it's unnatural. Exactly. So, but I had found a way where I could embrace my life again and be besimcha. And a lot of that was, was in trusting Hashem. And the way I am processing it now, again, this is, this is my story, my interpretation. I don't know if it's the right one, but it's the one I'm sticking with is that Tracy, Was a gift because I had trusted God and I had embraced Simcha. And I felt like this was, this was my special reward 10 years after losing my son.
0: Wow. What a story. I'm so sorry about your loss.
1: Yes. Thank you.
0: Where in theme post massacre, there, there are lots of bereaved parents, the unnatural loss. Any words of encouragement?
1: I feel that for a bereaved parent, I, I used to think that there was like, there was a bucket of tears and I had to fill up the bucket. <laughs> there's just, there's no shortcuts. There's no shortcuts to it. And I can't even compare the horror of my son's death to that kind of violent horror. It's different. I found that, that what I did that helped was I learned more Torah and that helped i needed i needed to feel like there was there was a meaning to it and however you can get to a place where you can see meaning again i think is helpful but some of it is time and it's it's also the the determination to focus on what you have that's left and what you can still do we have limited time in this world so we have to think about how can i best use that time you know I don't know, to promote spirituality, to bring good, to do chesed, right? So this is our resource and it's, it's being able to use it well. But it, it takes a long time and it's, it's not something that's, that's ever resolved. And I can't, I frankly, I can't even imagine the idea of of losing a child in such a, a terrible, violent fashion. I can't, I can't imagine. Thank you so
0: much, Sherry, for reaching out, for sharing your story. I hope you feel like you've shared more than you were planning to.
1: <laughs> yes, certainly. Yeah.
0: Good luck with the book and keep us posted. Thank you
1: so much. Yeah. I hope it'll be done in a year. It's it's called A Matter of Choice, A Story of Faith, Loss, and Sisterhood.
0: Thank you so much. Thank you for listening until the end. I have requests to do episodes with adults who lost a parent as a child as well as widows and widowers so if you would like to volunteer or you have a suggestion please do reach out reach out anyway because i love hearing from you i love hearing your comments and feedback and just stay strong because all we have is our morale half the battle with this war is the psychological warfare and the games they're playing with our minds and we cannot let them win we need to keep morale high We have to support each other. We have to uplift each other. If you need uplifting, my music is out there. My podcasts are out there. You can go listen to some of the older episodes. But keep spreading the light. Keep spreading the positivity. Whatever positivity there is at this moment, be safe. See you next time.